0: welcome to unison for our uh, week two of our sermon series you asked for it this is our yearly summer sermon series where we take questions from the congregation and try to answer them in the form of a sermon and as you can see from my title today that's a little bit of a sassy title right maybe try love like that's not to highlight that the question was bad it's to highlight that the answer shouldn't be too complicated right and Also, if you have any questions that you want us to answer in sermons, please reach out to us with them. Um, We have plenty of information and, and I don't know what the word is, fodder for sermons. You know, we we have enough. But we want to be able to meet the needs of the community, especially as they request information in terms of sermons. So please reach out to anyone on the staff with any questions you might have. We still need them. We want them. Okay. The question today is the next slide. What is a Christian response to LGBT plus identities and ideologies? What is a Christian response to LGBT plus identities and ideologies? So today I'll attempt to answer that question, right? I'll start off with saying this. Today is a pull-your-toes-in kind of sermon, right? Because I might step on them, okay? I might step on them, and I might step on them anyway, even if they are pulled in. So... Uh, please give grace as uh, some of these ideas may be new or challenging or difficult um, for this complicated, delicate, yet essential question that came from our Unison members uh, to address in this series. So Chase has talked about a pull-your-toes-in kind of sermon, right? Um, my, posture, my hope for my posture today is love, support, and a little bit of correction. Right? I see myself as trying to bring us all up to speed, and I have been dreading, <laughs> dreading a misstep in this sermon, okay? So, if my posture or my attitude in sharing these ideas is challenging or arrogant or frustrating in any way, please talk to me about it. That it I failed completely if I have the... Yeah, actually, let's take a minute and pray, because I have... <laughs> Seriously, you don't even know how I felt this week preparing for this sermon. Pray with me, please. Lord, I speak against any acts that the enemy might bring against this gathering today. I ask that you would be glorified in Jesus' name uh, by the words that are said across these airwaves. Lord, we trust you with all our technology. And uh, we believe that you are bigger and more powerful. So we speak against any attacks of the devil in Jesus' name that uh, yeah. your people would hear what you want them to hear today, yeah. Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to find my spot for a second. All right, I was, I was saying if the, if the posture of myself today is challenging or frustrating, talk to me. And if the ideas that I share today are challenging, that's okay, all right? So come to me if I've offended you with my posture. Go to the scriptures for yourself if I've offended you with the ideas. And don't forget to bring the Holy Spirit. And if that doesn't work, go for Chase when he gets back. (laughs) He told me I could say that, so... um, there's no real quick answer to this question, right? The New Testament doesn't address this topic, like this form of this question for our culture. It answers questions about this topic for the Greco-Roman and Jewish cultures that Jesus came into, and Paul and the other New Testament writers were writing and speaking to. Um, so today is going to take the shape of a heart talk. right? Chase has talked about heart talks in the past too. It's It's not to say that what I'm saying isn't biblical or isn't, uh, in, in, in line with the truth of the, the way Scripture moves, but there's no one Scripture behind what I'll say today. And so, for that matter, it's, it's not technically a sermon. It's more of a teaching, more of a talk about the heart of Scripture. Um, so, hear that, please. I want to stress one last thing, right? This is a response to LGBT+. Plus Identities and ideologies. If our faith is all based on Jesus and his teachings, right, the belief in his death, burial, and resurrection, we don't have any space for anything else to be that important. I've been on this kick recently about a Jesus plus nothing equals everything kind of faith, right? If we expect people to come to Christ and to learn about him and to grow to follow him and grow in Christ's likeness, we can't expect that they clean themselves up before they come to him. We can't expect that they have it all right before they step into leadership. Point is, I don't think I have it all right, and I'd be surprised. I'd love to meet you if you do think you have it all right. So, uh, this is a response. A person's view toward homosexuality, that it doesn't have to do with the Trinity, it doesn't have to do with the deity, the crucifixion, or the resurrection of Christ— or with the believers being indwelled with the Holy Spirit upon conversion. Since this topic doesn't touch such essentials of the faith, a person can have different views towards this topic and still be a Christian. I'm going to say that again carefully because it offended me to write it. Okay? A person can have different views from a wide range of belief on this topic, and you should expect to see them next to you, praising the Lord for... Ever, I think I can't proceed without sharing a little graphic for making sense of possible Christian responses and postures about LGBT plus experiences and identities okay I'll talk about each of the far ends of the spectrum first but there's an arrow and lines in between them because this is a spectrum okay anyone you can have beliefs that line up with different elements of each of the points And it's the, uh, the next slide. So on the one side here, we have side A. Hopefully those words are big enough to read. Side A says affirming, right? The, so this is a, a side A response to LGBT identities, ideologies, experiences. They would say love is love is love, right? It should be celebrated in, without reservation in all ways no matter what because that glorifies God, right? So there's Christians out there who think that. And they're Christians. On the other side here, the other extreme is side X. Okay, this X is out the experience. This would uh, further the or it would promote the sentence like that one that says God doesn't make gay people. Right, that the very feeling itself is sinful, and you should ask God to take it away or whatever other solution we come for with it. Those are the two extreme views. And today I'll be arguing for this middle one, side B, right? So this is the compromise. It says, same-sex attraction and orientation cannot be sinful, okay? I saw a couple of you do this with your eyes, okay? So that's my point today, is I want to bring us all to this, and I want to say side B is the best one. And I've been very careful and diligent in trying to decide what to think about this, okay? So, side so beholds that all Christians are called to a traditional biblical sexual ethic. Traditional biblical sexual ethic. If you were here last week for Pastor Chase's sermon, we were talking about uh, a redeemed vision for Christian morality around sex as it relates to sexual experiences in our lives. And this this came up, a traditional biblical sexual ethic, says that uh, sex is for marriage, and then we get into the definition of marriage from there. This isn't a, uh, about making cases for deep theology, right? This is about our individual responses, or our collective responses, to an experience that some Christians have, that some people have, about something like 3 to 10% of people in the world have this, and it feels like it's, part of who they are. It feels like God made them this way. And whatever we come to say about what God makes and whatever we come to say about our conclusions, I'm getting a little bit of feedback here. Worse. Whatever we come to say about, uh, about God's will or God's intention in this, it's an experience that some people have. And some of those people want to follow Christ. So we need to think about this carefully. All Christians are expected to figure out how to live and love and follow Christ in light of their personality, in light of their past, in light of what God has redeemed them from and what he's redeemed them to. And for LGBT plus Christians, they don't have to hate their desires. right? To take side B, they don't have to take what feels like part of them and hate it on the basis of it being sinful. Okay, so we'll get into this a little more as we move on. But like all Christians, they are not to commit sins and should desire to become more like Christ, however that looks for them. Right? If you hear nothing else today, I've already said it, I think side B is the right one. I don't see the biblical case for side A being convincing and true, and I'm really sick of Christians thinking that side X is the way to go. There are so many people who hate Jesus because of that extreme perspective, the side X perspective, and honestly, I think it's toxic to our witness, and we need to put that way, think, way of thinking through the gauntlet of New Testament theology, through the teaching of Christ, and through the instructions of the apostles, and through the whole Bible in general. Yes, on one level, we're all born into a sin nature that has fallen from God's original intended purposes, right? But the very existence of any one person cannot be an abomination to God. The existence of a person cannot be an abomination to the God who loves, the God who sent his son, the God who came as a man, died on a cross, a political, you know, execution-style death. That God wants to have a relationship with all people, and nobody ever had to clean themselves up before coming to him, right? Right? So I can't imagine how painful it must be to hear messages of rejection and condemnation over something that feels like it's genuinely a part of your being. Um, I debated on whether to share this story and I won't give too many details but um, when I was towards the end of high school getting toward the start of college um, my family would pick up my mom used to do daycare and my family would pick up some people to bring them to church and um, long story short one of the people that uh, she was like 12, and I saw her like a little sister, and um, my growing up church had a very strong side X view, right, where, you know, you need, to, you need to put your desires at the foot of the cross and let God take them from you, right? That was, that was the posture. And I just remember hearing a sermon, sitting there, and her eyes just were like, what? What? Who I am isn't accepted here, and I, I'd be far from church if I were her too. I would. Um, this, I, I know I said that many different views are possible about this question, but I think the center of what sidex stands for is hateful and unchristian. I'll get to exceptions. I'll get to exceptions. Uh, I talked with Candice this week, and she brought a really clear thing to mind that I'll, I'll get to today. Um, but our posture towards LGBT plus people uh, is part of the reason we have such a, a bad reputation in this day and age in our culture. Um, and here it is what I was talking to talking about can, talking about with Candace. It's the ex-gay movement, right? So maybe you're thinking of this exception where, wait, well, what does the ex-gay movement mean for this? So the posture of a whole generation of Christians towards people with LGBT plus experiences, attractions, inclinations, was this. Give it to God, find Jesus, and he'll redeem your desires. He'll redeem you and make you not. He'll change your orientation, right? So... They thought that that was the way God changed people's lives. And I recognize that God can do anything. And in fact, he's done some powerful things for people who were part of this movement. Uh, Jackie Perry does come to mind, right? She's written a, a book about this, and she's been very vocal. She says, I used to be a lesbian, right? She, that's how she talks about her experience. And God does that. That's okay. We can say that. But for the vast majority of people, that's not how it happens. They experience following Christ, and as they grow in likeness, they say, you know, it's easier to take control of my desires, or it's easier to, you know, ha- grow in self-control and, and stop being arrogant about what I think, or, you know, basic sins that we all have when we start following Christ that become easier to manage, or easier to put up with, or they go away over time. So most people, the, the vast majority of people, don't experience a change in orientation after following Christ. And as such, uh, most people, including heterosexual people, find that, the line, find that line of thinking you know, that God will take, you can pray the gay away, right? They find that line of thinking unhelpful for explaining their experience or what they see in the world. Again, God does what God wants. I'm not here to tell you God has never done such a thing. Or I'm just saying there is no clear indication in Scripture that God would do a thing like that. There's no clear indication that every person who comes to him would have redemption of their orientation, right? My whole point today is to say that orientation cannot be sinful, okay? It's a posture. It's it's an inclination. It's something about you, like your favorite color or your favorite uh, restaurants, you know, your favorite fries from a fast food restaurant, right? I don't think you can make any case from scripture that God would deem any inclination or orientation as sinful, except for maybe like thinking Chick-fil-A fries aren't the best, okay? I think you have to think that if you're a Christian, right? They're really good. Anyway, uh, sorry, that was a joke. (laughs) I'm getting lost here. So, The question wasn't about arguing among these sides, so I won't go into any more details about the positions that I have than I have so far. Uh, So come with me to side B and at least just come with me for the remainder of our time together and see what you think, okay? There's mountains of responsible research representing these views, and I can show it to you or give it to you if you uh, want to see. The the biggest name about this is, is a guy named Preston Sprinkle, He's a New Testament scholar, and he's got a very specific name, and he has spent seven, eight years diving into this, trying to redeem our view as Christians towards people with LGBT plus identities, experiences, and the ideologies surrounding them. There's, please ask me about this. I love this guy. He's the best. Um, So we've gotten to the major implication uh, of side B, and my answer to the question has three parts. So right, so we're saying, what is a Christian response to LGBT plus identities and ideologies? Three answers. One is if we're talking about a Christ follower, one is if we're talking about a non-Christ follower, and one is if you are raising children in a world that you don't think you understand anymore, okay? So with the first one, if we're talking about a Christ follower, I hope I've been clear so far. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that a person will definitely have a change in sexual orientation after following Christ. That can happen. God does what God wants. But it doesn't say that in Scripture. It just doesn't say that. Let me take a minute to break this down because it's striking at first, but simple once you see the whole picture. right? Uh, 2,000 years later, we have more complex ways of explaining our sexual experiences than the first century Roman culture did. People may perceive in themselves an attraction to a person of the same sex or gender dysphoria or gender confusion. We should see this as a non-sinful expression of identity, whether we come to the conclusion that God made them this way or not, okay? That's my point today is we should see orientation and inclination as not sinful in and of themselves, okay? Complexity in our relationships in this way actually has the potential to be a gift to the church because we get to learn how to relate to each other and glorify God more through the complexity of what it means to be a person in this world, what it means to live in our culture, to be winsome, but also hold on to truth and figure out how to make those two work together, right? So we could have discussions all day long about nature versus nurture, whether you think people are born with same-sex attraction or uh, you think they can, kids can be brought up in a world that encourages it, right? Nature versus nurture. Whatever you conclude about that, all our desires to commit sins infect our minds because of our fallen human nature. That's the way it is with every person, right? Not being able to get back to God on our own has been the whole problem of the human race this whole time. So why would we expect that God would redeem something if it's not, or that God would take something away if it's not an expression of sinfulness, okay? I want to say again, clearly, attraction and orientation, I don't think they're sinful. There's a difference between pursuing sinful thoughts and having thoughts come into your head, right? This this conversation kind of shifts towards, all right, well, if scripture is not very, is not explicit about what to think about this. We kind of take our enlightenment brains and figure out ways to kind of get around it or to understand what's going on. So we move to our thought life, right? The second you turn 12, and earlier for some people, you know the difference between a lustful fantasy and, oh, we should have Chick-fil-A for dinner tomorrow, right? You know the difference between a thought entering your head and using your mind to commit a sin, you know the difference, right? This is what I'm trying to say: is that homosexual, or take that word back, LGBT plus experiences and identities, inclinations, and attractions are intruding thoughts. There's something about you, again, like your favorite color, right? As opposed to using your brain to commit sins, you can. You can have these sort of things come into your mind, and then you can use your brain to commit sins in that way, but that's a different thing, right? That's committing a sin. This is something coming into your mind. The wording in Scripture seems to hold that Christ-likeness looks like giving up selfish and sinful ways of thinking and sinful behaviors. Look for yourself. The passages are Romans 1, verses 18 through 32, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, and 1 Timothy 1, verse 10. Those are the passages that talk the most about this topic, right? So, ultimately, I'm hardly a worthy authority, but it seems to me that a person with same-sex attraction who follows Jesus should be encouraged to draw their ultimate identity from Christ and not from anything else. I think of Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, and I'll actually read that for us. It's not on a slide, but I'll read that for us. Part of the movement of Scripture is to say that Our sinful, our our fleshly self. The sins are, are removed and the mind is redeemed, right? So this verse says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Every Christian, right? Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So the renewing of your mind includes uh, not giving in to temptations of pride or of arrogance or of avarice or of other sins that we know we commit, right? But these other things, your favorite color, your orientation, what kind of car you want to drive, why would we expect God to change such a thing if it's not committing a sin, right? I'm trying to say this over and over and over again, so you come away thinking, Ben's not just sharing his ideas, he's sharing what it looks like Scripture is actually saying, right? No matter what our inner life looks like, Christ deserves to be on the throne of our hearts. Anything else is idolatry. And in this way, I'm speaking to every person who hears my voice today. Put Jesus on the throne of your life and let the chips fall where they may. No matter who you are, where you've come from, what you've done, who you're attracted to, submit yourself to the lordship of Christ and let him direct you in the ways to obey him, in the ways to become more like him, in the ways to take this little light of mine and shine it back on Christ, the people in our culture who are lost, who think, oh, you, you hate me because of my existence. Maybe we could try love, right? And that's why my sermon title is kind of sassy. It's just, you need to be about five before you think, if you're brought up in church, before you say, oh, well, we should love people, right? And who knows what that means? We get to figure out what that means together, right? I'm not trying to say I have the solution, but it's not complicated, this doesn't change just because of who the other person is, just because the other person is an alcoholic or is you know, lost in a casino for 24 hours, gambling away their last four paychecks. You, you still love that person. You still find out how you can be helpful in a, in a redemptive way, and you submit that to Christ and you say, God, help this person, right? Because God can only do that. I'm getting off topic here. So, there's no doubt in my mind, right, if we're talking about a Christian, a Christ follower, I'm going back to that Jesus plus nothing. If our faith is Jesus plus nothing, then why would we expect a non-sinful expression of identity in a Christian to change when they become a Christian? We wouldn't. Orientation and inclination and these intruding thoughts, we might describe them as ah ah-sinful or a-sinful, right? Something that doesn't have to do with righteousness or sin. Christian life is one of obedience to God and submission to the Lordship of Christ. And so if someone comes into our lives, into our church, into our families, and has expresses these forms of their identity, uh, love them, share food with them, uh, say hi to them when you pass, Do, do the things you might do to the people sitting next to you who sinned this morning too, who sinned last night too, who sinned. Like me, who's sinned probably, you know, since I've been up here, right? Uh, your sin doesn't govern your relationship. God built us for relational connections, and you know, you need to have that connection before it's even ready to be brought up. Okay, second, okay, so that was our response if a person is a Christ follower who's expressing this type of identity. Now, if we're talking about non-followers of Christ, this is where it's just, it's plain and simple, okay? A possible Christian response to LGBT plus identities among non-Christians looks no different than it should with, any, with regard to any person who wants nothing to do with God. I propose not holding someone to a higher standard than, them, than they hold themselves, or who never even asks you to hold them to that standard. I expect that that person knows more about themselves than you do, no matter what they are living like, or whoever they're with, or anything about them. Expect that they know themselves better than you do, and respect that God knows them better than that, okay? It should never really be thrown in their face, though. You know, I mentioned this once, but basic winsomeness is the way to take this little light of mine and shine it on the cross of Christ. We point people on to him. That's our job, not to be a gate between people and Jesus, but to be a flashlight shining back on the cross, so the heart of New Testament ethics, of neighbor love, hospitality, and self-sacrificial regard for the oppressed leads me to think that God wants us to love people who are put down, love people who are lost, love people who he loves. And this is where scripture comes back into our minds a little more, right? Um, the people who we interact with won't hear any truth, any of the truth of, of God unless the Holy Spirit convicts their hearts and speaks to them in a way, right? You remember that. Maybe you remember that, maybe you don't. I was pretty young when I first gave my life to Christ, so I don't remember that conviction moment, but I've had those types of moments in my life, and I've heard about them from other people. People don't hear God unless the Holy Spirit convicts their hearts, but they won't be listening at all if we do something like, I don't know, oppose basic human rights for a whole section of our population, or if we hold that their existence is an abomination to God, right? That might work for about 2% of the population. God does what God wants, but the vast majority should be built on love, understanding, and growth and discipleship. Okay, growth and discipleship. I'm not even talking about the recent Supreme Court rulings either, right? I'm thinking of my opinion and view towards healthcare protections uh, Or conversion therapy when I was first growing up right I supported the what did I support making it illegal for people to uh, be married that's too complex I'm not diving into all that today there's so much going on there point is I had thoughts that were not Christ-like and we probably do too okay you might be familiar with uh, the song graves into gardens okay So this song, it declares that God is the one who turns dead things into living things, right? He turns graves into gardens. He turns bones into armies. That's God's job, right? God makes things alive. Our job, he gave us a job, is to make our enemies into our neighbors, to make our enemies into our neighbors, right? We are to love our enemies and we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. So we take our enemies, people who we think might be our enemies, and we love them when we make them our neighbors and we invite them over for cookouts or something, you know, whatever neighbors do, okay? (laughs) So, yeah, I've been in an apartment for a while, so my neighbors, you know, we kind of keep to ourselves, right? You know, it's it's a different sort of thing. But the point is you make your enemies into neighbors, okay? Uh, Look with me at our next verse for today. It should be Luke 10. Yeah, 25 through 29, right? So we'll read that together. I'll just read it up there. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? The man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your body, strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live but the man wanted to justify himself. So we asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And if you've been in church for five seconds, you know that this prompts the story of the Good Samaritan, where the person who, the, the Jewish people who would have listened and read this book first would have thought that, that person is the enemy of God. And yet a priest and a Levite passed by a person who needed help and a Samaritan stopped and helped him and paid for their hospital visit someone who we think we should hate, did something obedient to God. And that's where, you know, this guy gets it. This guy, you know, Jesus really stuck it to him, right? That's what we think about. So we take this teaching and we apply it to our lives in all kinds of different ways. And one of the ways will be, like I said, turn your enemies into neighbors. There's another uh, passage that I want to read today. It's Matthew chapter five, verses 43 through 48. This is in the Sermon on the Mount, right? The central teaching of Jesus uh, for for his ethics of the kingdom of God. And we'll read it together. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward do you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. These examples of the tax collector and the pagan, those are the people that the Jewish people were supposed to hate. They're the ones who were the furthest from God or who who disobeyed God by uh, worshiping idols or the ones who lined their own pockets with Rome's uh, tax... like tax laws, right? They were allowed to just take as much money from their neighbors as they wanted. So if you're a Jewish person hearing this story, the tax collector and the pagan, those are your enemies. But Jesus says to love them, and we get to figure out what that looks like, of course. There's never been a more clear enemy to the theologically conservative American Christian than someone who would call themselves lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, Genderqueer, questioning, intersex, asexual, and on. Okay, I don't say the list like that to say something about how long the list is. The point is that there are a vast number of experiences in this world. And Jesus wants us to love people who have those experiences and love people who don't have those experiences, Right? We've gotten it so backwards that we would condemn someone as an abomination for their very existence. This is the world we have to figure out how to live in. There's a man named Scott McKnight who's a Christian. He's a prominent New Testament scholar, and he talks about this command a little bit in a book that he wrote on the Sermon on the Mount. I find it necessary to quote him here, and we have it. It's a little small, so I'll read it out. I was going to read it anyway. Okay, Scott McKnight says this, enemy love is not a magic formula. It's not a trick. It's a posture towards every human being we meet. I want to pause there because our winsomeness, our witness, the, the reason we talk to people isn't just so that they come to the light of Christ. Yes, oh my goodness, we want them to come to the light of Christ. But we just love them because Jesus said to love them. He didn't say it's a magic formula that if you love this person, then eventually they'll come to Christ. We've kind of seen that as a pattern to be true, but God's not giving us a formula here. It's not a magic trick. Okay? This is a posture towards every human being we meet. We are challenged in this passage, Matthew 5 through 7, especially 43, verse 43 through 48. We're challenged in this passage to discern who we treat as enemies, those we claim to love but don't, those who never sit at table with us, those we label and libel, right? Those we give labels to and the ones we talk bad about. We're to take those people and convert enemies into neighbors by simply extending love to them. So our job in conversion is to convert enemies into neighbors and we can let God convert them into his children. Okay, we can trust God with, with all the people in our lives because he's the only one who changes them anyway, right? So that's the second uh, part of my response, right? If we're talking about a non-Christian, maybe try love. Third, if we're raising kids, if we're raising kids in a world that we don't think we understand anymore, and I think this was closer to the heart of the question that, that we received on staff. On this point, I can only give suggestions uh, because I haven't raised kids through childhood or teen years or preteen years or into adulthood. Right? My my only baby is one and she really loves talking to Chase while he preaches right um so maybe you've heard her right but she's only one so i don't know May, many of you all have raised kids to adulthood and i would actually trust your wisdom on this um i believe that our elders if they're pursuing christ likeness they have a measure of wisdom beyond what is even possible for those of us who are younger uh who've been following the lord for decades less than you have so whatever you've found please share Okay, And on this point, I'll ask my elders and you ask yours. Okay, But I believe it is enough to say this. Whatever comes your way in life, whether it's someone who is a Christian that looks very different than what you would picture as qualifying as a Christian, or if sex ed is getting earlier and more complicated in schools, or if preteens are trying out different methods of expression, or if your adult child comes to you and says, hey, I've been keeping a secret from you, goes on from there I encourage you be good news in those situations be the light of Christ be the person who shines the light back on Jesus because he taught us to love our enemies he taught us to give up our rights and follow after him right that was this communion that's what baptism means it's saying I identify with the man who was killed by the government 2,000 years ago and who was raised from the dead for our forgiveness of sins and I think he was right I think he was the one who has the words of eternal life, right? To quote the apostles in in the gospels. Following Christ means you don't get to pick who gets into his club. It means you don't. So I propose love and not judgment. I propose acceptance and celebration and not rejection or condemnation. I propose you respond to people in your life with experiences of same-sex attraction the very same way you would respond to people who desire to look at porn. The very same way you respond to people who are tempted to consume too much alcohol. The very same way you respond to people who are tempted to worry too much about what other people think of them, right, this is a sin we often don't talk about called vainglory. Who do you know in your life that is tempted to vainglory and how do you live in relation to them? It doesn't really come up that much unless you have the closeness of a relationship to address it or the, the influence of a parent or the influence of a spiritual parent and discipleship relationships to be able to talk about such a thing. You can remain confident of truth, but with the love and understanding and recognizing that if that invitation wasn't extended to you to talk about a thing, uh, that's maybe not what love looks like in this situation. So, a couple of little practical ways we can maybe try love, right, is to, I don't know, don't get caught making jokes about how many letters there are, right? Or get to know what people say about themselves. Get to know what people mean when they say, yeah, I'm pansexual. Get to know what that means before you just say, grab your pearls, right? Don't do that first. It's also not very hard to respect people's pronouns if they ask you to. Respect people's pronouns if they ask you to. Sorry, I spoke a little quickly. It doesn't have to be right, or it doesn't have to be ultimately truth, or you could be seeing yourself as lying, but the point is you can be welcoming and winsome without caving you know, or giving up all biblical theology of, of truth. Do the hard work of talking about sexuality and gender with your kids. Teach them what the scriptures say about how to live. These are just a few suggestions about ways that we can follow Christ in this topic, okay? And with that, we come to our uh, reflection and action on the next slide. So it's our conclusion time, right? So for reflection, I want you to think about what it means to come to Jesus as you are. Think about what it meant to you. What were you like when you made that choice? How can you extend that sort of thinking to the people in your life who might identify as LGBT plus or with that community, right? Consider where you stand on side A, side B, and side X on that conversation and ask God what he thinks, okay? Again, I'm saying that I'm making the case for side B and I recognize that there are Christians all along that spectrum, okay? It's possible to be a Christian and not agree with me. I really hope you never hear opposite from me or from anyone who's speaking on behalf of God, right? So those are the things you can question, right? Those are the things you can reflect on. And then our our action is maybe, try this, say nothing negative about unchristian lifestyles for this week. If you think that goal is too high or too low, change it. Grow in likeness. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you become more like Jesus. That's a way that it can look, where you can be more like Jesus. And this is what I, I need you to do, okay? I need you to do this. Pray, pray that God would help us improve our reputation and witness among non-Christians in this country. Among, non, among, among people who are so far from God, though we know God is with us, you know, we couldn't take a breath without him. That goes for every person, okay? They feel so far from God because of our posture, because of something the Bible doesn't even say. Pray that God would redeem our relationships with those of us who identify in any way with the LGBT plus community identities or ideologies. I'll pray now and join me in prayer, please. Lord, we need you. Lord, we're thankful for your word and we're thankful for when it's uh, clear and in easy for us to understand and we thank you that we can, you gave us the complexity to be able to understand it and try to understand what it means when it's not easy to understand, when it doesn't come quickly or when we have a new situation to apply it to. Lord, I ask that you would take our hearts, make them more like you, Guide us by your Holy Spirit into deeper community together. Guide us by your Holy Spirit into vivid witness of what you've done in our lives. Would you get us out of the way? Would you empower us to shine our lights back on your cross? And if we're in the way, would you get us out of the way? Lord, we submit to you and we need you. Jesus' name. Amen.